Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Showing Up to Your Life podcast and YouTube channel. Art Burns here, you there. Lots of excitement today. I mean, a lot of excitement. I have this really amazing story that I'm looking to share with you today. I hope you're as blown away by it as I am <laughs> because it is an amazing story that really undoes a lot of what we believe to be true about human nature, and I'm really excited about this. But before we get into the story itself, let's talk about human nature, right? Let's talk about, you know, I've been talking a lot these last couple of weeks here, you know, as we're gearing up for my Anger Transformed uh, webinar and course. I've got a few people signed up, hoping for a few more uh, to join this webinar, but it's going to be amazing. And, and you know, uh, you know so, so as we're talking about all of this, you know, there's a lot of anger in the talking, right? There's a lot of, you know, we, we've covered a lot about anger. And, and so, you know, when, when people experience anger on a chronic level, right? And this is true to a certain extent about stress in general, but but anger specifically, the emotion of anger does something really tricky, okay, and really sneaky, as I keep saying here in the last few days, is that it has a way, anger specifically does, has a way of changing the way that we're viewing things, right? It changes our filter, if you will, right? but in both directions, right? It changes, you know, it makes things seem maybe, um, you know, worse than things are, maybe makes things seem more dramatic than things are, it makes things seem more urgent than things might be, right? But it also <laughs> impacts the filter going out, right? Or the outbound filter, if you will, um, meaning that we say things that we think are appropriate, <laughs> that are not really appropriate, right? And we do things that we think are okay to do that are not okay to do, right? I'm talking about the punching the walls. I'm talking about slamming the, the doors. I'm talking about, you know, driving really angry and fast. And um, sorry, I got a little uh, <laughs> little bug flying in here. Front row seat to the, the podcast, little bug. All right, I love that. Um, you know, but but the thing is that that you know when we do those things, right? Ultimately, there's always consequences, right? And and that's where you know that's where this sort of um, we we confirm this misbelief that we had, right? Like the anger makes us believe a certain way, or, or makes us see the world in a certain way, right? And then when we act without this filter. Right. And we create consequences. And then those consequences affirm the way that we thought the world was. Right. Do you see what I'm saying? So it kind of confirms the illusion or the delusion that we had about how bad things are, how much people are out to get us, but how much, you know, rudeness, how much, uh, you know, all that stuff. Right. It's like it's like we we believe it because of the anger and then we act out of the anger and then the consequences of those actions confirm that original belief, right? So then that's how it becomes a worldview, okay? And so it's not just you, right? In fact, in 1951, there was a very, very famous book written, okay, by a, an author named William Golding, okay, who he wrote this book that's been translated into something like 40 languages, been printed, I don't know, 
billions of times maybe movies have been made uh references are made constantly to this this book uh, all of you uh um uh book files out there you uh you you literary people out there probably know the book that i'm talking about um but maybe you don't and that's okay right because it's not you know it's a very common notion but you know most people don't know the name william golding because he didn't really become a, a very famous writer outside of this one book so the one book that I'm talking about is The Lord of the Flies, okay? The story is about, um, I don't remember how many kids were actually in the book. I think it was like 12 kids for some reason that number comes up, but I don't know. The story is that uh, a plane went down in the South Pacific and a bunch of, you know, these kids, like 10, 12, 15 kids, whatever it was, washed up on this deserted island, right? And there were no adults, right? There were just the, the group of kids, right? And so the, the book walks through how these kids, you know, initially you know, with their conscious minds, they, they, they attempted to create a, uh, a governing sort of, uh, you know, a governing system, if you will, right? They, they, they said that they'll have to, uh, you know, there's a certain things that they need to do. They need to get food, they need to, to uh, start a fire, and they need to send smoke signals to get somebody to come and help them, right? And that was the whole idea, right? Oh, and have fun was the first thing that they said, right? Have fun, um, uh, you know, I don't remember the, the whole thing, but there's these three things that were, you know, but the thing is, right, that they started having fun, but all the other parts of it just fell apart, right? And and the way the the, uh, the, the book unfolds and the movie that, that was made from the book, you know, unfolds is that within a couple of days, like these kids had like painted their whole bodies and, and they became like, uh, you know, they became warring, you know, factions, you know, they became little, you know, like there was one kid that was elected the leader and then, and then another kid like tried to you know like resented him and eventually kids were killed in this situation like they literally killed each other like they descended and that's the thing like the lord of the flies when you say that that's you know that 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 notion just say those words the lord of the flies it indicates this chaotic scene like you know dark skies and fire torches and you know um although they let the fire go out which was the problem right but there was a uh, like a pig on the on the on the head of a stake right which is where the flies came so so the person who held that was the lord and and it was like you know it was this chaotic like very scary situation that happened right so i'm going to tell you a little bit more about william golding in a few minutes right but first i'm going to tell you that when the lord of the flies was published in 1951 or, or after it was published in 1951 you have to remember 1951 post-war era you know we're all coming out of what happened in world war ii which was just so many atrocities right so many just horrible terrible things that happened in the world right and so <clears throat> so that's the 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 world in which this book was written right and that's the world view that this author held was that that human nature is cruel human nature is selfish human nature is greedy human nature is 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 wild and untamable right that, that left to their own devices, children will become murderous, chaotic, uh, you know, anarchists, right? That, that was the theme of the book. That was the worldview of the author who wrote that book, given the time that it was. And again, I'm going to tell you more about William Golding in a few minutes that's going to tie all this very much together. But first, 
let me tell you about an amazing story. Okay, now I first read this story about a year ago, right? And I just looked it up for this uh, episode. I wrote some notes, so pardon me for looking off camera here. Um, turns out that in 1966, okay, there were six boys who were from the uh, the region of Tonga in Australia or, or an island off of, of Australia, I believe, right? And so they were in this boarding school together, right? And and the way they described this boarding school was that it was a pretty boring school, right? And so, uh, so they went to the port town of Brisbane, right, which was right near where their boarding school was. Maybe he's in the same town. I don't recall the details of that. Um, but, but they decided these six kids did that they were going to have some fun right so they took they had something like six bunches of bananas uh, a little uh oil burning stove burner and uh and i think some um something else they had like a, like a box of crackers or something like that and that's all these kids had with them when they got onto a boat that they stole right and now I, I use the word stole now these kids are like 15 years old right they're they're young you know high school age children right and so <clears throat> so when i say stole the boat I mean, like they took it for a joyride, right? They were going to go out and they were going to just, you know, go find some fish to eat and they were just going to go have an adventure, right? And everything was great, right? Smooth sailing, like literally sailing. They had a sailboat. It was a very small boat that they took and nobody noticed it leaving the harbor in the evening. And what had everything was going fine until the boys fell asleep, right? That was the mistake that they made. Not one child stayed up. They all just went to sleep because everything was mellow. They were just, you know, whatever. They woke up in the midst of a terrible storm, right? You know, they were literally being flooded. Their, their sails were, were shredded. They were literally just adrift, right? And they drifted like that with nothing but like a, a few bunches of bananas and, and maybe like a canteen of water I think they had or something like that. They literally drifted like that for eight days, these six young kids, Right. And so and actually after six days, they they came close to an island, right, where they were like, oh, my God, there, there's land there. We can we can save ourselves. And so the one boy, you know, jumped into the water to, to swim. And he even says that he it took him like it was a very short swim. And normally he would have been able to swim that in no time at all. But he was so exhausted from just lying there for eight days with not much to eat, almost nothing to eat, almost nothing to drink. And he almost didn't make it to the shore like a hundred yard swim or something like that right but he did make it and he signaled to the other kids that it was safe there was no you know animals gonna and it turned out that the island on which they landed was thought to have been uninhabited uninhabitable right um it turns out that you know about a hundred years prior there was an indigenous uh people who lived on this island who sadly were taken by slave traders but but so so what happens is they found these children did as they you know in the in the beginning i guess what they did was they they caught like a couple of seabirds right and what they did and i'm sorry if this sounds gross a little trigger warning here but what they did was they literally sucked the blood out of these birds and 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 sucked out all the eggs that they could find just to get some some you know moisture and some nutrition in them right and after a few days they they finally had enough energy that they started to explore the island and they went actually up onto the top there's a, a dormant volcano that 
that that had actually like a garden up there, you know, that was still growing, right? From from a hundred years earlier, when when people had cultivated food up there, right? I mean, volcanic uh, uh, soil is some of the best soil to grow vegetables or grow anything in, right? And so so it turned out that there was food there, and so these children, okay, I mean, you know, when when they were found. Okay, 15 months later by a, uh, a man named, I don't have his name on my notes, I'm so sorry, Peter Warner, I believe the guy's name was. 15 months later, he was a fisherman and he saw this boat like, you know, washed up on this island. He went to go check it out and he found these children there. And what he found much to the uh, the disagreement and much to the opposite of what William Golding told us about the Lord of the Flies, what this man found is he found six boys who had planted a garden. They had hol- they had used a hollowed out log for water storage. They had created a chicken coop. They had um uh <laughs> had created a badminton court, and they also had a gymnasium that they created with like you know branches of of trees with like coconuts on them for for weights and stuff like that, like sand filled coconut shells and stuff like that. They literally had workout equipment that these kids had made. Okay, it couldn't be more different, more opposite to what the Lord of the Flies has taught us that human nature is all about, right? And and not and on top of all of this, the one thing that the the Lord of the Flies, you know, the the really, you know, one could say the the real determining thing, the determining failure of the Lord of the Flies was to keep the fire going, right? And these kids had a fire that was continuously burning for 15 months. Now, here's the thing, right? In the book, The Lord of the Flies, and most of us are made to read that when we're kids. Like, I, I read it when I was in high school. I remember some of it, not not most of it. Um, but but one of the things that that um, that is talked about in The Lord of the Flies, right? Or, or again, one of the sort of um, aspects of The Lord of the Flies was that, you know, again, the idea, the worldview of the author was that was that human beings are inherently greedy, that they're inherently self-centered, that they're inherently violent, right? And what what Peter Warner, I hope I'm getting your name right, man. He's like 90 years old. He's still out there. They just interviewed him for this article like two years ago. I hope you, if you're if you're hearing me, man, I hope I'm getting your name right because I really respect you know your and and apparently he remembered so many details of this at 90 years old. He still had it like sharp as a tack. But anyway, um, <clears throat> what this story is showing us. Right. And there, there's actually some some more. So so once once, um, you know, once Peter Warner, I'm pretty sure that was his name, uh, uh, you know, kind of got to talking to these kids and, and, and really like finding out like what the heck happened. They even made a movie out of these kids like it was a locally made uh, reenactment of some sort. I've never seen it. Um but one of the things that so so Peter Warner and and others right so apparently when he called this is a really touching story too is that is that when he radioed in and said I just you know because he was like you know the kids told him that he's been there for fifteen months he was like yeah right whatever <laughs> likely story so he radioed in to the Coast Guard or whatever the authority is around there and they put him on hold for like twenty minutes 
and they finally came on and the person on the other end of the radio was like had tears in their voice and said those boys were given up for dead there's been funerals have been held for them they they literally this is a miracle like you you have no idea the 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 the, the happiness that you're going to bring to six parents you know, six sets of parents out there. It was really beautiful. You know, but anyway, as, as the story unfolds, we realize that not only did these children take care of all of this stuff, they did it in a very, very specific way. They did it through the opposite of everything that we learned about human nature of children through William Golding's book, and they did it with cooperation. They did it with compassion. At one point, one of the boys fell off a cliff that they were climbing up to go find something or whatever, exploring whatever, and he broke his leg. Now, the story of the Lord of the Flies would tell us that, you know, maybe they would cannibalize this kid who broke his leg, right? I mean, but, but they didn't do that. Do you know what they did? They carried this boy to a safe place and, and put him in a, uh, uh, you know, next to the fire and, and set him up in a comfortable place to, to, to ease his pain and take care of him. And they told him, they said, don't worry. You just lie there like, the, like King Tut, you know, don't worry, we'll do all the work for you, right? That's compassion, folks. That is compassion. That is cooperation. That is caring. That is kindness. That is love, right? And so what they realized was that not only were they determined and committed to caring for one another in compassion, but they had this golden rule that they created. Now, these are 15-year-old kids created this golden rule that any time there was an argument of any kind, even the, the most minor disagreement, immediately the two people disagreeing were separated, Okay, immediately they were separated and made to stay separate for 20 minutes or a half hour or whatever until everybody calmed down. These kids knew that, that the very root, that, that their very survival <laughs> relied on, on never letting the conflict become more than just that initial disagreement. Like they knew that if they stopped it in that moment and they interrupted it in that moment, that then they had a shot of actually surviving this. And they were right. They were right. They also had uh, regular work shifts in which they worked in pairs to complement one another. So they put a stronger child with a weaker child, a smarter child with a, an athletic child, you know, these kind of things, right? And, and they, they did it, right? They did it. They survived for over a year. I mean, that's amazing. Right. I mean, it's an amazing story that they were even able to do that. But of course, for me, what that tells me is that it confirms my belief that humans and, and we know this through neuroscience anyway. I mean, this, I didn't need to hear the the uh, the, the story of these uh, six kids on an island to, to know that our you know, I know it from neuroscientific research, but our brains and our nervous systems are wired for compassion and for kindness and for empathy.
Much to the disagreement of William Golding in 1951, who wrote this dystopian nightmare of, of these kids that, that became part of the zeitgeist of the world at that time. I mean, up until now, I mean, people still use that, you know, like on The Simpsons, they'll show a scene that's like reminiscent of The Lord of the Flies to indicate that human nature of of you know greed and 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 chaos and aggression and 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 conquest right but when we look at a real life experience that almost mirrors exactly the setup we find a completely opposite result which is a beautiful again life sort of example that sh that that proves something that neuroscientists have known for a long time right which is the fact that we are in fact wired to be cooperative we are wired to be uh to be kind to be empathic to be helpful to be loving right there's uh i'm just reminded before i go into the the next part of this of 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 you know the how this relates to anger um is that, um, <clears throat> you know, there's another story uh, of an anthropologist named Margaret Maid. And uh, this is somewhat unconfirmed. I mean, I've seen it in a couple of places. I, you, know, you know, you read stuff on the internet. You know, it's always, you got to take it with a grain of salt. But it's a beautiful thought, though, right? <laughs> is that uh, apparently this Margaret Maid was asked, you know, she, she was giving a lecture to her students one time. And she said, you know, a lot of people or, or one, of her, one of her students in this lecture asked, well, what was the first sign that you've ever seen as, you know, this, the first sign of civilization, right? And, and, and Margaret Maid says, well, you know, a lot of people ask me that question and they always expect me to say something something like a tool or a kitchen implement or running water or or agriculture or something like that, right, as being the signs of civilization. But she says it's actually not that. She said, we found a skeleton that predated any of that stuff, right, any of the tools, any of the agriculture and all that. We found a skeleton that predated all that that had broken a femur, which is the leg bone, right, a major, like you can't walk without your femur, right? And the leg had been broken and healed. And what Miss Maid said is that that is a sign of people caring for one another. Because in, in that time of, you know, in the wild, even today in the wild, if you're sitting there with a broken leg, you're basically food for the next predator that comes by. You know, like there's no defense you have. And so, so the fact that the, the broken leg healed meant that somebody carried this person to safety. Somebody watched over this person. Somebody fed this person. Somebody gave this person water. Somebody helped this person get through this, right? Somebody acted with compassion and kindness hundreds of thousands of years ago, right? So it really is how we're wired to be. Right. And so so how does this uh, how does anger come into all this art? What, what are we talking about here? I thought you were talking about anger here. What's going on, Art? Well, let me tell you. OK, turns out right now that we now that we know and I mean, we've known this for a long time. I mean, there's been a lot of uh, studies done about William Golding because he wrote this really famous book. And that's what happens. You know, when when people do something really famous, they get studied. Right. And so there's a number of things that we know about Mr. Golding now. <laughs> right. In hindsight, we know that uh, that he was an alcoholic. Right, which I'm not judging that. I'm an alcoholic too. Uh, we know that he was prone to to deep levels of depression in his life, which I can sympathize with that as well. 
we also know through various quotes and various um, interviews and, and just you know, various writings that William Golding was actually a Nazi sympathizer, right? And in that time, right, in 1951, I mean, it's only six years after the end of World War II, you know, you know, William Golding was there throughout, you know, like he, he saw the rise of the Nazi party and he agreed with that, right? Now, I'm not saying that to disparage the man, right? I mean, I'm sure that at that time, there was some sensibility that he had that why he was believing it. And I don't, I don't want to go there. Right. I mean, that's not my business. That's, that's his business, right? That's for him to, to, you know, like that's between him and his, his conscience, you know, um, it's not for me to judge. Right. But, but what I will say though, is that in Nazism and in world war two in general, right. There was a whole lot of anger going on. Right. There was a whole lot of anger energy happening in the world at that point. Right. And if you have a guy here who is, you know, an alcoholic, you know, is generally, you know, most alcoholics have high levels of anger. Right. Um, you know, depression is also something that that gets tied to anger as well, you know, maybe not so directly, but it's, it's certainly, there is a connection, you know, people who, who feel overwhelmed, overwhelming emotions on any level oftentimes are, you know, people who experience heightened levels of, of things like depression, right? Um, <laughs> and so, you know, and, and of course the fact that we know now that he was, you know, like believed in the not, like, like his, his premise of writing this book right, the Lord of the Flies, is that we all have a little bit of Nazi in us, right? Which, to be honest, I don't believe that that's necessarily false, right? I do believe that, you know, in my belief system, it's about systems, right? And I believe that anybody who's in the system, you know, of that Nazi Germany, that anyone is capable of becoming that, right? But what William Golding was saying was that we're already that, and that that's a natural outcome. That I don't believe. And again, uh, fifteen years, six yeah, fifteen years later, six boys from Tonga proved William Golding wrong about that, <laughs> right? And so and so that's what I'm saying, right? That this that the the anger that we feel can sometimes or or often does result in a coloring of our world view. Right. It makes us believe things that are not really true. It makes us see things that are not really there. It makes us, you know, express things that we don't really believe. Right. And that's what anger does. Right. And so the best thing, the most effective thing we can do, just keep an eye on the time here, making sure yesterday went a little long, but uh, the, the, what we can do, you know, as a practical matter, right, is to understand that anger, right? Again, never, ever, ever are we running away from the anger. Never, ever, ever are we saying anger, get into this box and don't ever come out, right? We're not doing that because that's really dangerous, right? But what we're doing is we're allowing the anger to be there. And if we can understand it, if we can change our relationship to it and actually become kind of friendly with it, right? Like having a cordial relationship with it, well, then we can understand it in a different level, right? And as we understand it in a different level, we can then, you know, alter and adjust the way in which it impacts us. And even just understanding it 
helps us take a step away from it so that we're not as much influenced by it as we would be, you know, if we're not conscious of it. Okay. And so all of this is the exact point of the webinar and the course that I'm about to jump into in the next couple of weeks. All right. So I wanted to share that with you today. Okay. Because it's important. It's important to understand that, that, that as angry as you feel, and as much as you feel that, that this rage is something that's natural or, you know, anger or rage, that it's natural, that it's normal, that it's, it's necessary for your life. And, and it's, and it's the way that it is, right? Like, that's how it feels to you. Probably. I know that's how it felt for me. It felt just like, this is just how life is. And I don't have a choice in the matter, but you do. You do have a choice in the matter. You can question these things. You can challenge these beliefs. You can understand that some of these beliefs have been foisted on you and they're not real and they're not accurate and they're not, you don't have to hold them anymore. And I'm here to help you with that. All right. So in the description, there's going to be a link. There's going to be two links. Okay, actually three links today. So the first link is to sign up for the webinar. Okay, because that's that's a great place to start. Just understanding, right? So I'm going to spend an hour explaining so much, so much of this to you. Okay, so so that's the first link. The second link is is to to book a call with me if you have any questions about this, right? Maybe you, you something I've said tonight makes you know really rang in or this morning really really resonated with you and you want to know more, right? Well book the call. Let's get on a conversation together. Okay. And then the third link. Oh, and also if you have any questions about anything else, that second link, whatever you want to talk about. Okay. Then the third link is going to be for a guided meditation that I'm hosting tonight. It's Wednesday. So I do a, every Wednesday evening, I host a guided meditation that's followed with a beautiful discussion, right? And people really do open up in these discussions and you, it becomes kind of a little mini coaching session and so in a group setting. And so, and I'm telling you, there's very little power, as powerful as, you know, a couple of people opening up in a group discussion. I mean, that stuff gets really strong and really powerful and you're invited and it's totally free. So the third link is going to be to register for that. It happens every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Uh, Mountain Time, which is 6 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Uh, Central and 9 p.m. Eastern. <laughs> Phew, I got through that. <laughs> All right, everybody. Thanks for listening. Thanks for watching. I really wish you well, and I hope you enjoyed this story today. If you like, uh, if you want the link, I mean, you could Google uh, the real Lord of the Flies, and you'll find it. But if you want the link to this great article that I read in the Guardian, I'm more than happy to send it to you. All you gotta do is email me. All right, everybody. Have a great day. Talk to you soon.